We are beginning a new conversation for the, the season of Advent. Uh, we're going to be discussing the question, what, or rather, who is Christmas for? Uh, you know, there are holidays that are for people, and there's other holidays that are for everyone. If you think about uh, New Year's, um, just a week after Christmas, that's pretty much for everyone. Everyone who's awake um, can celebrate New Year's. But Christmas has this idea of qualifications. There's this idea we, we pick up from the popular culture that you have to be a certain kind of person. You have to have done certain kinds of things in order for Christmas to be for you. We, we hear about Santa Claus coming to town and making a list of who the good boys and girls are, who's been naughty, who's been nice. Um, uh, we hear about how, how you better not pout, you better not frown because Santa Claus is coming to town. We get this idea that there are going to be, uh, there's going to be presents for some, some of us and there's going to be coal in some stockings. That Christmas, we just absorb this idea that Christmas is for a certain kind of people. Christmas is a holiday with qualifications. So we're going to be looking at that question, who is Christmas for, over the next couple of weeks. And kind of our guiding, our, our guidepost as we do that is going to be these opening verses from Matthew's uh, genealogy, Matthew's uh, account of Jesus' life. He begins with a genealogy. <clears throat> um, if, you, if, if you think about the, the, the story of Christmas, um, there, there's, there's only two of the biographies of Jesus even have a story of Christmas. The, um, the, there's four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And two of them don't have any Christmas story at all. Mark and John, they just kind of jump into the middle of Jesus' life at the beginning of his adult ministry. But Matthew and Luke do have Christmas stories. They tell us about the birth of Jesus. But the interesting thing is that Luke is kind of like, kind of like Walmart or Target. They kind of want, Luke wants to get us to Christmas right away. So as soon as, as soon as the gospel begins, he starts telling us about the way God, God has, has sent this angel here and sent this angel over there and all these things, all these kind of chess pieces that God is arranging. For Christmas, Luke really kind of gets right into Christmas right away. But Matthew is more like um, kind of the old school uh, church where you, you you spend four weeks before Christmas talking about prep, preparing ourselves for it. Matthew is like Advent. Matthew begins with this period of saying, I'll get, I'll get to Christmas. Christmas is coming. But first, let's look at this genealogy. Matthew begins with a genealogy, which is which is really interesting. Because, I, I don't know about you, but a lot of people, their, their attitude about genealogies, they're kind of uh, taking the advice of the letter to Titus. Paul writes in the letter to Titus, he says, he says, avoid genealogies because they're useless and worthless. And you have to put some ellipses in the sentence to make it come out that way. But a lot of us kind of think about the geologies in the Bible, uh, genealogies. We kind of see them and we kind of just kind of slide on past them. We go, good, two pages I can skip. Um, so, uh, but they're worth looking at. And Matthew's, Matthew's genealogy is particularly interesting because he omits some people. Uh, he, he omits not just, not just run-of-the-mill people, it's like no one bothers to mention them, but kings. Matthew actually skips some kings because he's interested in kind of crafting a tale. And so he says, the son of, and, and that's, that's, that's legitimate. Uh, he could say son to mean grandson or great-grandson. That's the way the language worked. So he's not, he's not lying. He's just kind of being very creative in the way he writes, he writes his genealogy. So it's interesting because of who he skips. It's also interesting because of who he includes. For example, in this passage we read today, the, the part we just heard, there are no women's names uh, except one. 
And, and in fact, in the entire genealogy, there's only four. And that's not unheard of. Uh, some of the genealogies don't have any women's names at all. The, the famous book of the begats, if you've heard the, the King James language, the book of begats has no women's names at all. It's all about the begatting and not about the bearing. So uh, the begatting is the fathering and the bearing is the mothering. So there's no, there's not the book of bearing. It's the book of begats. So there's no women's names at all. There are some other genealogies in the Bible where there are, where there are women's names mentioned. But Matthew has chosen to omit the names we would expect. He doesn't mention Abraham's wife. He doesn't mention Sarah. She's got, she, meant she's, she figures in four or five chapters earlier in the book. But Matthew doesn't mention her. Uh, he doesn't mention Rebecca. Uh, Isaac, Isaac had this, this miraculous gift of a, of a wife handed to him on a plate. We looked at that back in our series on, on prayers being answered back in September. Uh, how Rebecca came to Isaac. Matthew doesn't mention that. He doesn't talk about this whole soap opera story of Jacob with his two wives and his two concubines. Judah and his brothers we hear about, but not their mothers. The mothers of those twelve children. He skips all of these women, and the first woman he mentions is Tamar. So we're going to look at the story of Tamar, Tamar and Judah. And what we're going to find is that it's one of those stories that you kind of, everybody in the family knows, but we don't talk about. You know, it's not a story we we make a point of telling people. So um, let's go ahead and look at this. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, if you turn to, to chapter 38, or you can look at the screens and follow along or um, uh, look at it in your program. So, the story of Judah and Tamar. So it says, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Judah left his brothers. Judah, those brothers we just heard about in the genealogy, Judah and his brothers just cooked up a plot to kill someone, actually to kill one of their own brothers, uh, to kill the brother they didn't like. They cooked up a plot to kill him, and then uh, Judas, for whatever reason, Judas said, You know what? It, it, instead of killing him, let's just sell him into slavery. So Judah, Judah is, um, has been running with bad people who do bad things, and maybe he's not as bad as some of them, maybe he is, but for whatever reason, he's kind of thinking, you know, I've been hanging with the wrong crowd, I'm going to go find a different crowd to hang with. So Judah leaves his brothers and goes to stay with the man of Adullam. And there he, he meets a, a Canaanite woman, and he gets married, and he has some children by her, and he has three children, and we're going to pick it up again in verse 6. It says, um, Judah got a wife for his firstborn son. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now remember, in the previous chapter, we just heard about how Judah and his brothers plotted murder and uh, human trafficking, and they didn't get put to death. So Ur must have done something that's you know, spectacularly wicked for God to put him to death because God has been uh, 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 not so proactive in dealing with uh, other things we've seen. So uh, the Lord puts him to death. And then Judas says to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, that's just a cultural thing. Uh, in those days, when uh, you, you had a, a sister-in-law who was widowed, uh, it was your duty as the next oldest brother-in-law to marry her so that she could have children. And the reason for that was obvious. They didn't have any kind of social safety net. They didn't have all the, the structures we have. So there wasn't uh, pensions. There wasn't uh, retirement accounts. There wasn't life insurance. There wasn't social security. If you were uh, 
older, you better have children to take care of you in your old age because nobody else would. So the idea was uh, you, you might be able to get some handouts from your relatives until they die. But what happens if they die and you're still alive? You're old and no one's going to take care of you. So the, the rule in that culture was that someone would, would marry their sister-in-law so that, so that um, she could have children. But Onan doesn't do it. Onan fakes it. It says, Onan knew the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother, he spilled his semen in the ground to keep her from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. So, two of the brothers, there's one, there's a third brother we're going to hear about in a minute, uh, but two of the brothers now have died, and so Judah says to uh, his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. That's what he says. He says, which is going to be a little bit like he's still pretty young, you don't want to marry him yet, let him grow older a little bit, and you know, you'll, you'll still be fine, um, and you can marry him then. That's what he says, but what he's thinking we read, he may die too, just like his brothers. He's basically thinking, there's something about this woman. She's toxic, she's radioactive. I don't know what it is, but people who marry her die. And I don't want my son to die. He's the only thing I've got left. So he says, he says you'll marry him at the right time. But the right time is just never going to come, lady. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adullamite went with him. And when Tamar heard, uh, was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So she realizes that that... Uh, Judah's going to keep shining her on. He's going to keep telling her happy stories indefinitely. He's not going to let her have what he owes her, which is a husband. Now, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to the road to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And she says, And what will you give me to sleep, to sleep with you? She asked. She says, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Now, she says, or she doesn't say because that would give her away, but she's got to be thinking, um, you know, this guy's pretty good at making promises. It's fulfilling them that's his problem. So she says, will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? And he says, your seal and its, uh, she says, he says, what, what pledge should I give you? She says, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So I gave them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, he took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So she has now uh, taken for herself what he would not give her, uh, 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 someone who would give her a son. And so we skip ahead several verses, and then we pick it up. Three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah is a strong law and order man. Uh, it's one thing when it's him and his brothers plotting a murder, that's okay, or you can kind of say, well, there were circumstances. But when it's his daughter-in-law who's playing the prostitute, he says, bring her out and have her burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah recognizes them. 
And he says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. They both wanted the same thing. They both wanted Shelah. They both wanted, in her case, a husband who could provide her a son. And in his case, a son who could take care of him in his old age. He wanted an heir. He wanted someone to pass on his wealth to who would then take care of him. They both wanted Shelah. But she is more righteous because she acted out of a position of powerlessness. And he refused to act out of a position of power. He had the ability to give her things, and he refused to. She had nothing, and so she took what she needed. They both did wrong, but he says, she was more righteous than I. So the question for us is, is why does Matthew tell us this story? Why does Matthew tell us this story? It's kind of an icky story. There's a lot in there we kind of cringe at and go, well, you know, it's not really Christmas fair. Why does Matthew begin his story of the gospel of Jesus with this icky story from deep back in the, the long past of Israel? Why does Matthew do this? Not just do this. Why, not, why does he draw our attention to it by making it the first person we notice? Wait, what's she doing here? I thought this was going to be a, a genealogy without any women's names. How come he didn't talk about Sarah or Rebecca? Leah, Rachel, how come the first woman he mentions is Tamar? We don't like to talk about Tamar. I mean, every family, Matthew, has skeletons in the closet. We don't talk about them, Matthew. And Matthew insists on pulling it out of the open. He dredges it up and shows us this skeleton in the closet. Why does he do that? He doesn't say, but the reason is obvious. Because Every family does have skeletons in the closet. Every closet has skeletons in it. Matthew tells us because he wants us to know that's the kind of God that we're dealing with here. There's a God in heaven who says, I can work this all out. But he wants us to know that he understands what we're dealing with. He is a God who understands what it is to have skeletons in a closet. And the reason is because he came down and took skeletons on himself. When Jesus became flesh, he got the whole package. He got everything that's involved in being a human, including those people that we don't talk about, or at least not when the kids are still awake. He got the skeletons in our closet. Jesus became truly one of us. Now, Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus became one of us. But he didn't stop there. He came down to deal with the things that lead to those skeletons in the closet. He came down to deal with the fears and the insecurities, the the addictions, the problems that caused those skeletons in the closet. There's a story in the scripture how Jesus was going into, into a town one day and a funeral procession was coming out. And Jesus saw what was going on. It was a widow. Someone a lot like his great, 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 great grandmother, Tamar, a widow who had just lost her son, the, the, the son that Tamar didn't even have. She had this, she was older, and now she had nothing. And Jesus comes up to her and says, don't cry. And then he raises her son from the dead and hands him back to her. Jesus came not just to identify with us in our brokenness, not just because he's a me too kind of God, Jesus came 
to deal with the problems that lead to the skeletons in the closet. So imagine, imagine if you could go up to Judah at that moment. He's just gotten the seal and the ring, or the, 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 uh, these things, the, uh, the staff, the seal, and the cord. And he's just said, she is more righteous than I am. We both did wrong. She didn't do as wrong as I did. And you could say, Judah, things look bad now. But take heart. You have done wrong. But God has not rejected you. Judah, this line... The children you're about to have are going to become a tribe. They're going to be one of the tribes that your brothers, uh, one, of, one of 12 tribes, each of your brothers is going to have a tribe come from them. But they are going to be assimilated in the surrounding cultures. The ten lost tribes of, of Israel are going to be lost. But your tribe, Judah, your tribe is going, when they get captured and taken into captivity, they're going to come back. And the place they live is going to be called Judea after you. And people who live there are going to be called Jews. And it's all because of you, Judah. There is no problem, Judah, that God cannot redeem. There is no mistake that God cannot bring good out of. Judah, from this union, this thing that is making you cringe right now, Judah, God is going to bring kings who will save your people. Not only that, God will bring a king who will save the world. Judah, God is in the business of redeeming mistakes and healing hurts. Judah, you have done wrong, but God can redeem this. We all have skeletons in our closet. I want to share with you the ones I feel comfortable sharing. <laughs> this is a picture of the uh, this is a picture of the uh, Dodge City Police uh, Commission from the uh, 1800s. Um, the guy in the front um, with the, the bowler hat and the mustache, second from the right, that's Wyatt Earp. Um, the guy behind him with the, with the kind of shiny glow, um, we'll talk about it in a minute. But then the guy next to him, uh, further over, yeah, that's, that's Bat Masterson. So if you're a student of the Old West, these are, these are people you've heard about back in the old gunfighter days. The guy with the glow, he is, he is Luke Short. He is my great-great-uncle, and he was a whiskey runner. He ran whiskey out to the reservation and then shot any Sioux Indians who uh, gave him trouble. He uh, killed a marshal in uh, Fort Worth. Um, if you go to Boot Hill in, um, in uh, Tombstone, Arizona, you see this. Uh, you see a um, marker there. It says, Charlie Storms shot by Luke Short. Um, they got into a fight over a gambling. Uh, they were playing cards, and Luke Short plugged him full of lead. So uh, that's kind of one of the skeletons in our closet. But we all have skeletons in our closet, don't we? I mean, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody kind of some unsavory character. And with a 100 years, we can kind of smile and say, isn't that kind of funny? But imagine if he was like, he might show up at, at Christmas dinner, right? You know, right? <laughs> it's harder to smile then, right? We've all got skeletons in our family tree. We've got skeletons. Maybe it's, maybe it's the grandfather who just ditched ditched everyone. He just disappeared one day and, and grandma was left to deal with things the way that the best she could. Maybe it's the grandfather who stayed and drank and got violent. Maybe it's, it's the, the divorce that your parents had and the wreckage that you and your siblings are still kind of work your way through. Uh, we all have 
baggage. We've all got skeletons in our closet. Some of us, it's our own skeleton that's in that closet. It's the thing we did, the thing we don't talk about, the thing that, that if you pushed us and you said, you know, what, how, how do you tell me about that? We might say, well, look, I'm not proud of it, but I didn't see any alternative. I, I, I was, I had my back to the wall and I would, I, I would hate to, but I would do it again. If it, if the circumstances were the same, I'd do it again. And no, I'm not proud of it, but I had to do it. Or maybe, maybe we'd say, you know what? I, I, I wish I could go back. I regret that because I'm sure I could have found a different solution than the one I did. All of us have skeletons in our closet. And Christmas reminds us that God is, first of all, a me too God. He didn't have skeletons in his closet, but he came here. He took on flesh so he could have them. So he could come alongside us and say, me too. I have skeletons in my closet. But beyond that, he came to deal with the problem, to deal with the death, the fear, the insecurity, the addictions, the alienation. Jesus came to deal with our hurts. Christmas is for people with skeletons in their closet, like Judah and Tamar. People with skeletons in their closet, like us. Christmas is for us. So this week, I want you to spend some time this week thinking about the skeleton in your closet, the one you thought of when I mentioned this. Think about that. And ask yourself, how is God at work in that? How could God bring healing and hope to me through that? Can God redeem that? I mean, he can redeem people in the Bible, but can he redeem me? Ask that. And ask God about that. Ask God, how are you using that thing in my family tree, the thing Grandpa did? How are you bringing healing into the world through that? Spend some time this week thinking about the skeletons in your closet because God came to deal with the skeletons in our closet. Thanks be to God. Amen.